0: Friends in Shalom, this is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry, where we talk about what they don't teach in churches. And today I'm bringing a special message that I've titled Christianity and the Bible. And as you can see, I've taken a seat. I'm more relaxed for this message. I'm not up to do the fiery preaching that I've done on a number of other messages that I have done as a more of an appeal, a strong appeal to Christians to really think about things that they believe in their churches. But I feel like we we really need to step back sometimes and, you know, take a seat and tone it down and just really go through these things logically and rationally and reason together with those of the Christian religion who have been taught things that are opposite of the Torah-positive message. Now, and so, you know, these people in, in Christian so-called Christianity, you know, they, they've been taught a particular, what, what theologians would call a hermeneutic, or a understanding of the Bible, and I don't like the term, but an interpretation of the Bible. And I don't like that term because... We're really not supposed to interpret the Bible. We're supposed to read the Bible and do what it says. And if people would learn to do that, it would solve a whole lot of problems. Now, some of what I'm going to be talking about in this message are points that I've covered in other messages, in articles that I have published in the past, which you can read at truthignited.com. And particularly for this message, I'm pulling from messages that I titled, questions for Christians, and the other, an appeal to Christians. So if you want to go more in-depth with some of the points that I'm going to be bringing in this message, that would be a good place to start. I also want to say that I'm probably going to go a little bit long in this message. I've already planned that this is going to be longer than a typical 30-minute sermon that I've been doing on a number of other video messages and that's all fine and well that, that we do that. And I'm going to get back into that. Don't you worry. If that's your style, if you've been l- latching on to Truth Ignited because of the preaching and the, the fiery messages, those are going That's going to be pretty much the standard of this ministry. So don't think that that you know I'm changing my format. This is something I'm going to do on occasion. I will sit down and do more of a teaching style of message, because it's important, but I'm also going to continue absolutely preaching this message, because there just are not any solid preachers that I see. I mean, there might be a few here and there, but for the most part, I don't see that kind of preaching in the Torah movements. I see a lot of teaching, and a lot of dry teaching, but I see a lot of teaching in the Torah movements. And I see a lot of not-so-good teachings. There's just some goofy stuff out there. But that's what I see for the most part. So I absolutely want to continue in the mode of preaching the Torah message. But today we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about some things. Now, sadly today, the majority belief is that Christians are not obligated to follow the Torah of Yah you know, what is often referred to as the Mosaic Laws or the Laws of Moses. Now, those terms are used in Scripture, so they're not unbiblical terms. But the problem is that when the Bible uses the term Laws of Moses, the writers of the Bible had a very different understanding of that term than what Christians today understand that term to mean. You see, in the Bible, they had a certain reverence for Moses and following the Torah as given to Moses. So when they used the term laws of Moses, they weren't talking about some old obsolete thing. They were talking about something that was the mandate of our God. See, it seems like all too often today, when you bring up certain parts of the Bible, Christians are, conti- are conditioned to either label you a heretic, or being part of a cult, or both. You know, what makes people part of a cult is not the biblical beliefs they share. It's the things that are whacked out, the things that are completely off the wall that those cults believe. That's what makes them a cult. Not the points from Scripture that they share with sound doctrine even if those are points that the majority of who consider themselves the orthodoxy rejects a great example is seen in the seventh day adventist religion now now I chose them because there now there is some debate long standing debate of whether they should be labeled a cult but I chose them because of their view on the sabbath now you know Many consider, like I said, many consider them a cult, but the SDA almost always comes up when you mention the biblical Sabbath day, which is something I'll be discussing in this message. The Sabbath, however, is not the reason that the SDA is a cult. Investigative judgment is one of the reasons why they're called. Now, if you've never heard of this, this is an idea that is, I'm not sure if it's exclusive to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, or if they're the biggest proponents of it, or the originators of it, but this idea of investigative judgment says that Yeshua, our Messiah, they believe that he is a prosecuting attorney, and that he's in heaven right now, going through everybody's case file, your case file, my case file, everybody's case file, and he's building a case against us, and that when we go and stand before the judgment, we're going to have to win our case against Yeshua, the prosecuting attorney. That's crazy. That's insane to think that, but... You know, it's not what the Bible says at all. It's, it's, you won't even, you can't, in fact, the Bible says that Yeshua is our advocate. So where they get this idea, like, I really have no idea. And then then there's a thing called soul sleep, and, and I'll brush over that because I've looked into it, it looks really weird. Some people think that it's okay, some people don't, but... You know, this is another reason that we could attribute to why the SDA would be a cult, or as one of my old Bible professors said, that if they're not a cult, they're about as close as you can get without actually crossing over that line and being fully labeled a cult. And and then we've got veganism. Ellen White, their creator, their leader, their whatever, you know, their... She said that it's a sin to eat meat. This is what, and I've gone and looked it up and read it. She said that it's a sin to eat meat. Now, if it's a sin to eat meat, why did God command us to eat lamb for Passover? See, that wouldn't make any sense, right? If it's a sin to eat meat, that's kind of contradictory that God would require us to do something That's a sin, so that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would God give commandments to distinguish between the clean and the unclean if we're not supposed to eat animals at all? Like, that doesn't make any... Like, there's no purpose to the food laws in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14 if we're not supposed to be eating meat anyway. You know, it doesn't make sense that in Genesis chapter 9... God gave Noah to eat certain meats after the flood, and and a lot of Christians misinterpret that passage, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that one, but if you study that out, and Dr. John Walton put a phenomenal piece together in the NIV application commentary. Now, I don't agree with everything Dr. Walton says about other topics, but as a professor, as a linguist, he did a piece on the Hebrew word used in that passage called remess, and he describes how that is not referring to a blanket term for every single animal on the planet. Because if it did, it would have to include things like poison dart frogs that would kill you if you eat them. You know, it would have to refer to other animals that if you eat them, you would die either instantly or very quickly without treatment. And, And, you know, it's the same you know, the passage in Genesis 9, it says just like every plant you. I now give you of the animals to eat, and we know that there are plants that if you eat them, you will die instantly, right? You know, you think about that movie that was really popular some years ago, The Hunger Games, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a movie you should watch or shouldn't watch, but in that movie, I remember seeing that movie, and in the end, it was a competition, and if you're not familiar with the movie, it was a competition in a dystopian society where they would take two children from, not really children, but like, you know, kind of teens, that that age group, kind of teenage group, they would take a pair of teens, a boy and a girl, from 12 different districts, and they would put them in a competition to the death, And the sole survivor was the winner of the competition, and there was two from the same district that made it to the end, and they were the last two that were alive, and they were trying to decide what to do because neither one of them wanted to kill the other. And so they took out some poison berries from their pocket, and they said, we'll just take these. We'll count to three and just take these. See, there are plants just like that in real life that if you eat them, they'll kill you. There are animals, like the poison dart frogs, that if you eat them, you will die. So, Koramez in Genesis 9 is not talking about every single animal on the face of the earth, okay? Um, Every creature is good in 1 Timothy 4, 4 is not talking about every single animal because if it is then it should include the poison dart frogs. And if you continue to read that passage, it says that nothing is to be refused, which Christians often take as meaning, I'm not supposed to refuse to eat the pork. Okay? If that's what you believe, then let me put a plate of poison dart frogs in front of you. If you believe, eat what is set before you, the in, under the Christian understanding of it, and you believe the Christian view of 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, then let me slide a plate of poison dart frogs up in front of you, and now you're not allowed to refuse, or else you are going against your own beliefs. And you see, that's just how crazy Christianity tends to be at times. And, and, and you know, I knew a lady who got caught up in extreme vegan ideas. We were talking about veganism and Ellen White and the Seventh Day Adventist religion or cult or whatever you want to call it. And I knew a lady a while back who got caught up in some very extreme vegan ideas and to my knowledge she is still caught up in those ideas. And she be listen to this. She began promoting the teachings of a literal witch doctor and self-proclaimed herbalist healer and would reject anything that I said to her about the Bible and meat. Now, now, think about that. This is where these these goofy cult views will lead you to. One time I made a comment about it, and she replied something like, the original diet was fruit, fruit, fruit. The original human diet, fruit, fruit, fruit. You know, of course, she's referring back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, before the fall of man, before, at, at the very least before Abel became a shepherd, certainly before the flood, and so she was trying to say that the original diet was fruits and vegetables, and that's it, and so that's the only thing we're supposed to eat. And in order to do that, you have to literally ignore things that God commanded in Scripture. Now, now this is not just, you know, God permitted us to have meats. No, if you read through the Torah, there are commandments regarding meats. And like I said, at the very least, there is a commandment to eat lamb meat or goat meat, you have the, the option of lamb or goat, for Passover. Okay, so so veganism is 100% unbiblical, and that is why the SDA, one of the reasons why the SDA can be labeled as a cult, because they're promoting views that go against the Bible, that blatantly, blatantly go against the Bible. You know, one time I saw this lady, she shared a picture of food that she had at some restaurant. She put it on one of her social media pages. And she had ordered something at this vegan restaurant that was called a Buddha Burger. And, and I saw this picture and it said it was the Buddha Burger. And, and, and you know, the Bible says, and most Christians actually still agree with this one, not to eat things that are offered to idols and other gods. What in the world causes a Christian to reject the words of the Bible, accept the words of a witch doctor, and eat food named for a false deity like the Buddha? That doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's it's ludicrous. And, and anyway, you know, these are the reasons that the SDA is either a cult or, or maybe close to being a cult, whatever your view on that is. You know, not because they actually get it right regarding what day the Sabbath is. You know, the SDA was formed, the Seventh-day Adventists, was, were formed in the 1860s in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Sabbath day was created by God, on the seventh day of the creation week. Read Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. That's where the Sabbath is created. The Seventh-day Venice, they don't own the Sabbath day. And keeping the Sabbath doesn't make you a part of the Seventh-day Venice, nor does it make you a Jew, nor does it make you anything else other than a follower of the Bible. Okay, keeping the Sabbath is part of following the Bible. You know, there are two words, two principles, and two major figures that we must consider when we read and study the Bible. These are righteousness and lawlessness. The righteous one, Yeshua, and the lawless one, Satan. Satan. And if you study those terms out, if you study the word lawlessness out, both the Bible, as First John 3, 4 defines sin as lawlessness, or breaking the Torah, transgressing the Torah, violating the Torah, that is the definition of sin. It's the definition of lawlessness. Is going against the Torah. Okay? And then And and you can see that supported in a number of theological resources, which I've shared in other messages in the past. And the same with righteousness. If you want to know what righteousness is, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25, and it says, It will be counted as righteousness if we do, if we follow, if we obey, if we live according to to this Torah. So lawlessness is against the Torah, righteousness is following the Torah. And then if we look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about the lawless one, and it talks about a delusional force that is part of the lawless one and being follow following the lawless one. And the lawless one is Satan. It's not Yeshua, it's Satan. If we go to Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage, it refers to Yeshua as the righteous one. So we've got Satan is the lawless one. He leads you into lawlessness. That is very obvious if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. And you read that discourse. And and if you need to, read it over and over and over again until it sinks in through your thick head that Satan's objective is to get you to reject the Torah, to break the Torah, to go against the Torah, to rebel against the Torah and the God, Yah, who Gave the Torah that is Satan's mission okay and then the righteous one Yeshua what's the first thing we see him doing when he starts his ministry on the earth he says repent for the kingdom of YAH is at hand let me ask you a question if the Torah is done away with as Christians believe and the Torah is the standard by which we identify what is a sin, sin is the violation, the breaking, the transgressing of the Torah, then what in the world would you have to repent of if the Torah has been made obsolete, as Christians want you to believe? It doesn't make any sense. You know? And, and then look, at the beginning of the Bible, again, again, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're led through, a, through the creation narrative, but really chapter 1, 2, and 3, we're led through the creation narrative into the incident at the tree of knowledge. We were told in Genesis chapter 2 that we could eat from all the trees of the garden, but there was just one tree in the middle of the garden. Really, there were two trees in the middle, but there was one that was highlighted and that was the tree of knowledge and God said don't eat from the fruit of that tree it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and don't eat of it now people have tried to say that that's literal others have tried to say that it's literary like allegory or you know something to that effect it doesn't really matter because the literal narrative says that it was a tree Okay, so regardless of whether it was literal or literary, the the Bible says there was a tree and we were not supposed to eat of it and it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, what happened? The commandment was broken and future access to the other tree, the one right next to it, the tree of life, was denied. Okay, it says that the people were banished from the garden, And then the way to the tree of life was blocked off by an angel with a flaming sword. So we were not allowed, humanity was no longer allowed to access the tree of life. But then, when we get to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, we're told that it's going to be those who keep the commandments that will be given access to the same tree of life, in the world to come. Now some translations of that passage will say those who wash their robes. So people might get a little confused about that, but I've looked into that, and the phrase wash your robes was actually an early idiom, an early Hebraic idiom that meant keep the commandments. It was like a slang term referring to keeping the commandments. So if in the beginning we were prohibited from the Tree of Life, we were banished from the Tree of Life for breaking the commandments, and the only way to receive access to the Tree of Life in the eternal kingdom is to be one who keeps the commandments, then where in the world are Christians getting these ideas that they don't have to keep the commandments? Like, it literally doesn't make a lick of sense. It's Again, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's weird. Popular Christian theology teaches that the Torah is a burden and a curse and that God had to deliver us from it. But is that what the Bible teaches? You know, if this is true, if it's true what Christians say about the Torah, that it was a bondage and a curse that we had to be delivered from, that means that God delivered His people, the Israelite people, the apple of His eye, that He delivered them from actual slavery, actual bondage in Egypt, only to put them under the harsh bondage and curse of His law and keep them there for thousands of years and punish them if they didn't follow his law. Now, of course, it says, you know, you read Deuteronomy 20, 80, you know, people were blessed for keeping the law, but they were under a curse and they were punished oftentimes through not keeping his law. So, Christian theology wants you to believe that God did that to his people, just this harsh, dictator, evil, despicable God of the Old Testament. And, and of course, that comes out of Marcionism, and I don't want to get too in-depth into Marcionism, but much of what Christians believe today actually traces its root back to Marcionism, which is a heresy that was addressed in the second century, but it took hold because Marcion was a wealthy traitor, and even though he was rejected by certain parts of the faith that were holding true to the scriptures, he ended up having a lot of sway and a lot of power, and his influences really stuck with what became the first, the Roman Catholic religion. The it was originally called the new roman religion and then later became the roman catholic religion and if you if you're a christian outside of roman catholicism you probably already believe that the roman catholic religion is a totally pagan and idolatrous religion because it doesn't take much You look at the way that they venerate the saints, and you look at the way that they elevate the Pope to the so-called Vicar of Christ, and all of these things, and if you study them out, and especially if you study them in any depth, you you really find out just how idolatrous and how evil the Roman Catholic religion really is. So, you know, we're not Roman Catholics. and it just makes no sense to me that we hold to the beliefs of Marcionism in Christianity and we hold to the beliefs of Roman Catholicism in Christianity and you know you study the origins of a lot of the beliefs that are strongly held by Christians and one of them is is this idea on it's some capacity that there's this God of the Old Testament who was this harsh, evil, harsh bondage law dictator God who put his people under the harsh bondage of the law. And then there was the New Testament God that is love and peace and mercy. And oh, he delivered us from that bondage of the law and all of this stuff. And l- listen, that comes out of Marcionism. And even if you don't believe it to the extent of Marcionism, if you're a Christian, you've probably been taught that and led to believe that in some capacity. Listen to this: Psalm one nineteen one, blessed. Wait, wait, wait! I must have a trick Bible here. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Torah of Yah. But but I thought the Torah was a curse. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no divine vision, people cast off restraint, but blessed, blessed again, blessed, is the one who keeps the Torah. And this one, this one I really like. This this one is 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 just blows my mind because this isn't even Old Testament. What they call Old Testament. This is the Apostle James, who was the half brother of Yeshua who wrote the book of James, who is considered to be, historically is considered to be the leader of the movement of Yeshua's followers within the city of Jerusalem at that time, he said, he said, but the one who looks intently into the perfect Torah, the Torah that gives freedom, that must be wrong, it's supposed to say bondage, right? I thought the Torah gave bondage. I thought the Torah was a curse that gave bondage. No, 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 no. It says the Torah that gives freedom and continues in it, not becoming a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He shall be blessed in what he does. So so wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold, hold, up, hold up a second here. I, I, I'm confused because Christians want to tell me that the Torah is a curse, and that the Torah is bondage, and yet the Bible is right here saying that the Torah gives freedom, and those who follow the Torah are blessed. You know that that's exactly what Deuteronomy 28 says. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard a Christian wandering wandering around in a church before a service or something, you know, in their little prayer times or whatever, they they get there early and they begin praying or whatever, and so often the time I've heard people say, you know, I'm I'm blessed in the city and I'm blessed in the field and I'm blessed coming in and I'm blessed coming out and I'm the head and I'm not the tail and coming in and going out and blah 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 blah. And you know what they're doing is they're quoting the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and claiming them over their life but these are people that object to following the Torah see if you begin in verse 1 of the chapter it tells you that those blessings are for those who follow and live by the Torah if you read the whole chapter you'll find out that there's a point where it flips and it says now we're going to talk about a bunch of curses that belong to those who don't follow the Torah. So these Christians are going around saying that they're blessed in the city and blessed in the field and blessed coming in and blessed going out and that they're the head and not the tail and they're above and not beneath and the fruit of their womb will be blessed and all of these blessed and blessed and blessed and they're, they're lying to themselves. They might not realize it but they're lying to themselves because that doesn't belong to you. Contextually, that doesn't belong to you if you don't follow the Torah, if you don't live according to the commandments of God. We can also consider the millennium. Check this out. No, 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 just, just check this out. According to Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23, following the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. This is one of the few places where it refers to the new heaven and new earth and it's talking about the establishing of the millennial kingdom, the millennium. All people will keep the Sabbath day bowing down before Yah. That's what it says. According to Ezekiel 45, verses 21 through 25, now, this is... A portion of the Millennial Temple narrative. It's a very big narrative in the book of Ezekiel that's speaking about what many consider to be either the Third Temple or the Millennium Temple. And it says everyone will be keeping the Passover and the Fall Feast days as well. Then, if we go to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19, It says that all of the inhabitants of the earth in the millennium will be required to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you read it, it is specifically saying all people of all nations. It's not saying just Israel, just the Jews. It's not saying that. It's saying all people of all nations have to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says that whoever doesn't do it will be punished with no rain for their crops. And it goes on and gives the example saying if the Egyptians don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they will receive no rain for their crops. It's, it's letting us know very emphatically that it's not talking about just the Jews, just Israel. It is absolutely talking about all nations on earth in the millennium. Whoever makes it to the millennium, has to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. According to Isaiah 66, verse 17, you know, right back to Isaiah 66 again, it says that when Messiah returns, and this passage, the entire chapter of Isaiah 66, is widely regarded as a prophecy about the second coming of Messiah. And it uses language like the time of the Gentiles or the glory of the Gentiles. And it's very clear in the passage that it's not, that it's prophetically speaking about this period of time and inclusive of the Gentile nations, people who follow Yeshua and people who don't, people who follow the Torah and people who don't. And it says, it says when he returns, Isaiah 66, 17, it says that those who do not follow the food laws who eat swine flesh, pigs, rodents, and anything else that is called unclean or an abomination in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 will be annihilated. And, and Revelation 18, 2 it is also in, indicates that in the yet-to-come future, unclean beasts and unclean birds are still regarded as unclean. I'm going to just hold that because I'm going to bring that back up in a little bit. Let, let's look at a series of questions here. We'll, let me ask you a few questions. And, and these are for Christians. So if you're watching this and you're a Torah positive person, you know, th- this is good information maybe to help you with your Christian friends. But if you're a Christian, a mainstream Christian who believes anti-Torah beliefs that are peddled by the churches and you're listening to this message I want to ask these questions to you if you were doing something that God does not approve of wouldn't you want somebody to tell you about it if you were not doing something that God wants you to do wouldn't you want somebody to point that out in the Bible to you? If God gave you a gift, would you just set it aside and say that you don't need it? And then this one. If there were things that the majority of Christian religion is wrong about, and those things could have an impact on where you spend eternity, Would you do whatever it took to study out the truth? Now, now I want you to think about that last question. Think about all those questions for a little bit. And if you have to, pause this message and, and just think about those questions for a little bit. You know, I've got them right here on the screen for you. I want you to stop the message if you have to and look at these questions and focus on these questions and think about these questions for a little bit. Because... And especially that last question, because, you know, I have prepared over 150 written messages, lengthy theological studies that would prove to you that Christianity is wrong. And, and I mean, I. I'm not just talking about wacky theories here. I go through and I give you the history, I give you the theological resources, I give you the references, I give you statements from leading theologians, I give you historical records, and I give you Bible, of course, and I give you all of the information to show you that what I'm saying is true. Now, if you are in Christianity and you are wrong, and I could show you that you are wrong, and all you have to do is commit to reading a series of studies that I've prepared, wouldn't that be worth it? You know, I mean, I could be wrong. And and if you're that smart that you can prove me wrong, by all means, go ahead, go through my work, and show me that I'm wrong, and save my soul. But I'm just telling you, I've put it all together, and I think anybody with a rational mind would see that it makes a whole lot more sense about what the Bible actually teaches than what you're being fed in the churches. So I would challenge you to do that, to take the time and do that. I'm not asking a lot of people. All I'm saying is, If you go through and do and look at what I've taken now over 20 years to put that stuff together for people just like you, and it's all available at truthignited.com where you can go through and you can just look at the, the works that I've put together and you'll see it, I promise you, you'll see it. And it'll make sense to you. And you'll you'll the wheels will begin to turn in your head. And you'll begin to realize that what they're telling you in your churches simply is not true. So now I want to turn our focus, and I want to talk about a few things that I find Christianity to most be wrong about. And the first one we've already brought up is the sabbath day the sabbath day now there is not one place in the bible where the sabbath is defined as anything other than the seventh day of the biblical week now the biblical week changes over at sunset ancient israelite culture change their days at sunset. So on our modern secular calendars, the Sabbath coincides with sunset Friday night until sunset Saturday night. That's when the Sabbath is. And we we can look through history, and we've got an unbroken chain of Jews and other Torah-keeping people keeping the biblical Sabbath on That period of time between what we call Sunset Friday to Sunset Saturday, going back at least, if not well beyond, the time of Yeshua. So when Yeshua kept the Sabbath, when the Apostles kept the Sabbath, they were talking about the seventh day of the biblical week, every week from Sunset Friday to Sunset Saturday, what we would call that. There's not one thing in the Bible that indicates Christians are authorized to change what day the Sabbath is or even what the Sabbath is. I'll talk more about that here in just a moment because there's people that like to say that Jesus is our Sabbath now. So we're going to talk about that too. The Sabbath was created, I already talked about this, on the seventh day of the creation week. It's one of the so-called Ten Commandments, and I say so-called because it gets a little sketchy when you really begin to study that, because it's never really called the Ten Commandments, and it's really unclear if the Exodus 20 list is what was actually highlighted on the tablets. And, and I, that's for another time and another message, but, but there are some questions to be asked about that, so don't get offended that I said so-called Ten Commandments, but I have studied that and believe that there is reason to question that tradition. And so, the Sabbath was created on the seventh day of the creation week. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It was kept by Yeshua as documented in the Gospels. And it was kept by the Apostles as documented in the book of Acts. There are 85 Sabbath days specifically documented in the book of Acts that the apostles kept. It says that by their tradition, they would go to the synagogue, whatever synagogue was in the area that they were in at the time, that they would go there for the reading of the Torah, which was the primary reason why people went to the synagogues on the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath day. Hebrews 4.9 says that the Sabbath remains and cannot be taken away from God's people. And again, as I've already mentioned, it will be kept in the millennium. Now, one place in any of this is the Sabbath defined as anything other than the seventh day of a biblical week as it is established to be from Genesis 2. So where do Christians get their ideas from that Sunday is their Sabbath, or Jesus is their Sabbath, or or the Sabbath has been done away with. The simple fact of the matter is that there's not a single statement in the entire Bible to support the Christian belief against keeping the actual Sabbath. No matter which approach they take to redefine what that day is, or deem it an obsolete practice, regarding the Sabbath day, Christians simply cannot support their beliefs with the bible now let me talk for a moment about that whole jesus is our sabbath thing first of all the bible never says that one time never says that jesus is our sabbath no jesus or more appropriately yeshua is not your sabbath that view is not supported by the bible that's something that Christianity made up. And, and if it were true, what if it were true? What, what if we could really justify Jesus is our Sabbath? Let, let's think about that for a minute. I, I want to I say, you know, maybe, maybe I'm off here and maybe Jesus is our Sabbath. Well, the Bible says that Yeshua is the bread of life and in him we will not be hungry. So, if Jesus is your Sabbath... and and that means that you don't have to keep the actual Sabbath as commanded in the Torah, then it stands to reason that it also means you need to stop eating food. Let's see if your faith is real. Let's see how long you can live without eating food. After all, maybe you are right, and Jesus is our Sabbath. The Bible also says that Yeshua is the light of the world, and in Him... There is no darkness. Shall we test this to the Jesus or our Sabbath claim as well? You will have to stop using all forms of light that are not Yeshua. That even includes sunlight and moonlight. Board up all the windows of your home and get yourself a blindfold. After all, you believe that Yeshua is your light and will guide you, right? So close all the windows of your home, board them up, cut yourself off from any light, get yourself a blindfold or, you know, a sleeping mask or something that will block light from entering your eye sockets and walk all around relying on Yeshua to be your light. He will allow you to see through the blindfold and see everything lit up without the use of natural or artificial lighting. Okay, because Jesus is your Sabbath, right? Well, let's do one more. Let's do one more. The Bible says that Yeshua is the door. We enter through him. So, are you willing to remove all the doors from your home and trust solely on Yeshua to keep all the bugs and the burglars from invading? You see, it gets ridiculous when you think about these things. It's just just silly. Because Christians, they come up with this nonsense and that's what it is. That Jesus is our Sabbath thing is a perfect example of Christianity's nonsense that just simply doesn't work when you read the actual Bible. So now I want to talk about those Leviticus 11 food laws. We, We mentioned those already a little bit. Talking about how unbiblical veganism is. Contrary to popular Christian belief, There is not a single passage in your Bible that, in context, means we no longer have to follow the commandments regarding clean and unclean meats. Matthew 15 and Mark 7 are talking about a hand-washing ritual, and they're also talking Yeshua is condemning the traditions of men in the passage, and saying that people follow the traditions of men instead of the commandment of God. Now if he's saying that the thing you need to stop doing is following the traditions of men and the thing you need to start doing is following the commandment of God, then it stands to reason that he's not telling people they don't have to follow the Torah food laws anymore. That's not what he was saying in the passage. So that's, it was talking about the hand-washing ritual, not the Torah food laws. Acts chapter 10. Now, a lot of people like to go to Acts chapter 10. People seem to think that Acts chapter 10 is the proof text of proof texts that the food laws are done away with because Peter had a vision. Listen. Acts chapter 10 Is all about taking the gospel to all the nations it's not about the Torah food laws Peter literally gives the interpretation of the dream in the narrative he said through a dream YAH has shown me not to call people unclean there's no evidence that Peter after the vision said hey by the way pass me a ham sandwich I get to eat that now. D-d-d-d- he didn't do that. In fact, if that were the case, then why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, is he saying, it is written, be holy just as Yah is holy. That statement comes directly out of the Torah from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45 and Leviticus 20, verses 25 and 26 where it's directly linked with keeping the food laws One translation of Leviticus 11:44 it says don't become disgusting in God's eyes by not following these food laws by eating unclean things okay and then if you go to Leviticus 19 verse 2 and 3 it links that phrase with keeping the Sabbaths both the weekly Sabbath and the annual high feast appointed Sabbaths. Okay? Those are all things that are the three things that are directly connected with the statement that Peter quoted. If he thought that the vision was giving him permission to eat unclean things, then it makes no sense for him to go to that passage and quote it. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3-5, a lot of people like to turn to this one. You know, every creature of God is good and nothing's to be refused, they say. Well, they're, they're misunderstanding it because it's dealing with a particular Gnostic heresy. If you look at it, the same people who were forbidding people to eat foods that God had approved of to be eaten in his Torah, which shows us that he was talking about clean animals were being forbidden, it says that these same people were forbidding marriage. Okay? Now listen, let me ask you a question. Okay, if you're a Christian, and you've been led to believe that First Timothy chapter 4 is telling you that you don't have to follow the food laws anymore, what are you doing promoting marriage? In fact, what are you doing opposing anything that is not traditional marriage? Let's just slide that one right in there. Right? Because, because listen, man, this, These passages are misunderstood. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. It's part of a narrative that begins in verse 8, talking about philosophy, which comes from the pagan religions of Greece and Rome. You know, the pagan philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these kinds of guys. It's, it's talking about philosophy and empty deception. According to, again, the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world rather than Messiah. It's not talking about the Torah food laws when you get to verse 16 and 17. It's talking about things that fit under the banner of pagan philosophies, empty deceptions, the traditions of men and the principles of the world. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Another passage that people like to go to. They, they seem to think that it says that we don't have to follow the food laws anymore. But they're dealing with a debate about whether or not it's okay to buy and eat meats that were sold in the local markets where there was an uncertainty if the meats came from animals that had been sacrificed to idols or pagan gods. So again, it has nothing to do with the Torah food laws. None of these passages have anything to do with the Torah food laws. Christians are reading that into passages that have nothing to do with them to create a belief that they don't have to follow something in the Torah. But if you study these passages in context, and you read the whole Bible in context, it doesn't support this belief. In addition to this, we've got New Testament passages, like 2 Corinthians 6.17, where we're told that we are to touch no unclean thing if we want to be received by Yah. And he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. And we already saw what the prophet Isaiah said regarding the return of Messiah and what's going to happen to people who eat unclean things. You can also read Isaiah 65 verses 3 through 5 where it says that people who eat unclean things are a are described as a as a fire in the nostrils of God that burns all day it, it, it's, it's something that he reviles that he hates And you got revelation 182 again where unclean animals and unclean birds are still regarded as unclean. And and listen, it also mentions unclean spirits in the passage, so you don't even have liberty to read into unclean animals and unclean birds the term unclean spirits, because that's in the passage too, distinguished from them, so it doesn't even allow you to twist that scripture and manipulate that scripture into being about something other than what it's actually saying. Look, look, The apostles never abandoned the belief that they were to follow the food laws. We know that Peter didn't abandon that belief after the vision. Paul certainly didn't abandon that belief because we see him later in the book of Acts going to the temple to make offerings, to make sacrifices. And it says that he was clean in order to enter the temple. In order to be clean to enter the temple, he could not have abandoned the food laws. He had to be living by the food laws, or he would not have been considered clean to enter the temple to make his sacrifices. Now, the third thing I want to bring up is holy days and holidays. Holy days and holidays. Leviticus 23 detailed seven appointed feast times that Yah tells us to keep Passover. The days of unleavened bread, the day of first fruits, the day of Shavuot or Pentecost, what Christians often call Pentecost, the day of the blasting of the shofars. A lot of people say the day of trumpets or Yom Teruah is the Hebrew name of it. There's the day of atonement, and and um, and then there's the feast of tabernacles or the feast of Sukkot. Additionally. There's a festival called Purim established in the Book of Esther, and John 10:22 to 20 23 tells us that Yeshua was at the temple for Hanukkah. It says it was winter in Jerusalem and the people were celebrating Hanukkah and Yeshua was there at the temple. In contrast to these, we've got Christmas, Easter, Halloween, and days to venerate Catholic saints, like St. Patrick's Day and St. Valentine's Day. And these are the creations of the pagan and idolatrous Roman Catholic Church. Now listen, uh, uh, let me say something about Patrick, because I did a study on Patrick, and I I did a two-year study on the real Patrick, the man behind the mythology of the Catholic Church, and I wrote an article on it that, again, is available at truthignited.com. It's a, a wonderful read. You, you'll really enjoy reading it if you're a history person, if you want to understand that aspect of history and biblical history. The dude was not a Catholic at all. Like, he was opposed to what the Catholics believed. This was a guy that history tells us was probably of a Jewish lineage, very likely of a lineage of people who fled out of Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple, who were followers of Yeshua. So Jewish followers of Yeshua was very likely his lineage, where he came from. So it makes logical sense that he too was a Jewish follower of Yeshua. And if you study his life, he kept the Sabbath, he followed the food laws, he celebrated Passover according to the Bible, not according to the Roman Catholic religion and how they were trying to change the timing of that. And, you know, that's the quatrudeciman controversy that people talk about and all of that stuff, right? But when they made him a saint when the catholic church took his name and made him a saint it's not talking about the actual guy it's talking about the roman catholic saint so you know i I love the history of the real patrick but i'm not going to celebrate the catholic saint patrick's day and, and the veneration of the saints and the mythology that goes into the saints, because if you look at some of the things that have been said about this Patrick over the years, you know, it talks about how he banished snakes from Ireland. That's part of the Catholic mythology, okay? It talks about all these people that he raised from the dead. Well, there's no historical record of that. That's part of the Roman Catholic mythology about this guy. So if you're pushing things like that, that is part of the Roman Catholic mythology. Just like the old Roman gods had a mythology about them, so too, the Catholic saints are given a mythology about them. Okay? And, and Christmas is, is comes from the phrase, Christ's Mass. That's in, in the year 1080, I think it was, somewhere around there. I think it was 1080. It they first used the term Christ's Mass as a description of their December 25th celebration that the Roman Catholic Church had made up. And I've done teachings on that. I don't want to get too too in deep I don't want to get too in depth on the error of December 25th and how that's completely wrong and is celebrating a different Yeshua from the actual Yeshua of the Bible, who historically appears to have been born during the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the appointed feast days that we're supposed to be celebrating anyway. So, Christmas comes from the term Christ's Mass. Okay? So, it's a Catholic Mass. Again, if you're not a Roman Catholic, what are you doing celebrating a Catholic Mass? That doesn't make any sense. Right? Right? especially if you recognize that the Catholic Church is a body of idolatry and paganism and elevation of popes and veneration of saints. Easter. Easter is not Passover. okay? Easter appears to come from an old Teutonic fertility goddess named Eoster, who is recorded by A guy named Bede, or beedy I'm not sure how he's supposed to pronounce his name, but he was a monk who recorded history, and he recorded the history of that event. Now, there's some people out there that say that there's not a lot of good evidence to support that, but there actually is. And and I may do a teaching on that one these days, because I've dug into and actually found information that, goes way beyond what I've seen anybody else research into this. And I assure you, there is evidence for the cult of Eolster. And then there's Halloween, which, uh, apart from even the Druid Celtic stuff, the, the real evil, scary stuff that people bring into the Halloween celebration and the jack-o'-lanterns tracing back to the Druids and, you know, all of the scary, creepy costumes and celebration of death and the dead and possibly links to the Spanish Dia del Muerte and the Day of the Dead and things like that, right? Apart from even that, people like to say, well, no, 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 it's not really about that. It's actually a Christian holiday, All Hallows' Eve. okay. Okay, let's think about it. All Hallows Eve is connected to All Saints Day. Again, Roman Catholic veneration of the saints, deified people that they call saints. What they are is lesser gods in a pantheon of pagan religion. That's what the saints of the Catholic Church are. And listen, I just found a book. And and, and I I bought it because it was on like a clearance deal or whatever. And and it's a book that I wanted to look through and, and I may use it as an illustration sometime. And it goes through, it gives you a saint for every day of the week. These people are leading you into idolatry. That's what this all is. It's idolatry and paganism. And when you celebrate Christmas and Easter and Halloween and St. Patrick's Day and St. Valentine's Day, what you're doing is you're celebrating Roman Catholic idolatry and paganism. That's what you're doing and you can't get around it. And then many of the traditions involved in those holidays have been appropriated from non-biblical pagan religions, too. I've got a whole bunch of books, and I've talked about this in the past. I've got books by witch, Wiccan witchcraft authors. Some of them hold degrees in the history of this stuff, and teach in universities on this stuff, okay? These aren't just rando Wiccan people. Some of these people are educated Wiccan people. And they talk about where the traditions that are so sacred to Christmas and Easter and Halloween come from. Listen, Deuteronomy 12, verse 29-31, through and, and other passages in the Torah, tell us quite emphatically not to appropriate the ways of the nations, the way that they worship their gods, and use them in our faith. Think about that golden calf incident at the base of the mountain. Moses was up receiving the Torah. they molded the molding the, the golden calf, and they what what did they do? they didn 't worship the calf. people get that wrong all the time. They act like they were molding the calf to make it an idol to worship. They said no, tomorrow will be a feast to Yah. They took a pagan symbol and appropriated it into creating their own feast for Yah. He was about to give them his feast days in the Torah, handed to Moses, and they said, no, 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 we're going to make our own feast. Think about what the Christian religion does. They've got the feast days appointed in the Torah. They've got Purim. They've got Hanukkah established in Scripture. And they say, no, nah, we don't want to do, those are Jewish holidays, and we're Gentile Christians, so we're just going to create our own feast to Yah, and we're going to appropriate from pagan religions, symbols from pagan religions. Think about what they do with that Christmas tree. They, they take that Christmas tree and they say, well, the Christmas tree is an evergreen that reminds me of this part of Yeshua, and the, the ornaments remind me of that part of Yeshua, and the angel or the star of the top And what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. That's literally what they're doing. They've they've recreated the golden calf incident. That is exactly what Christianity has done with Christmas and Easter and even Halloween and some of this other stuff. Listen, 2 Kings chapter 22. It tells a fascinating story. The king had charged a renovation of the temple to take place in the process they found a copy of the torah that had been lost they, they looked at it and they said what is this they, they looked at it they started they opened the scroll up and they, they said oh, this is the torah we got to get this to the king so they took it they took it to the king and they they read it to the king and what did the king do the king tore his clothes and repented Think about that. They had religion. They had their ceremonies and their rituals. They had their pagan holidays. Because you, you read through through the books and they were raising up altars to Baal. They were raising up Asherah poles. They were burning incense in high places. They had appropriated all of this paganism and idolatry into the nation of Israel. They had their pagan holidays holidays that they had appropriated just like Christian churches have done. They had appropriated the ways of other religions. They had their form of churchianity. But they didn't have the Torah. And yet, the Torah was with them the whole time. You know, Christians, you have the Torah. It's in your Bible It's right there in the front of your Bible. It's the first five books of your Bible are commonly referred to as the Torah. But actually the Torah is the commandments contained within those five books of the Bible. Listen, listen. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. It says that it's not difficult to follow the Torah. You say that it's impossible to follow the Torah, but your Bible says it's not difficult. You say that you can do, you like to sing songs and, and make proclamations that you can do all things through Christ. Why can't you follow the Torah through Christ? You, you sing that song that all things are possible, or, or there's, a, I think there's two of them. There's, there's one that they sing that says all things are possible, and one that sing, they sing that nothing is impossible. And and those are come straight from the Bible, but they've made popular Christian worship songs out of that. And they sing those songs. All of things are possible. Nothing is impossible. But then if you ask them if they can follow the Torah, they say, oh, no, 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 no. The Torah was impossible. That's why God had to do away with it. Why are you singing that all things are possible and nothing is impossible? And why are you saying that you can do all things through Christ if you're saying that it was impossible to keep the Torah and nobody could ever keep the Torah, which isn't even what your Bible says. If you look at Zechariah and and... Zechariah and Sarah, the parents of John the Baptist, in in Luke's Gospel, it says that they kept the Torah perfectly. That they were without blame. That they kept the Torah perfectly. And that was before Yeshua was even born. So it's not impossible. It's not difficult. It says right here, Deuteronomy 30, 11-14, that it's not difficult to follow the Torah. It's not Way up in the sky where you can't reach it. It's not way on the other side of the sea where you can't get to it. No. It says that the Torah is near to you. It's in your mouth and it's on your heart to do it. Think about that for a second. That's in the Torah. That's what it says right in the Torah, in Deuteronomy. It says that it's in your mouth and on your heart. Does that sound at all familiar to you? It should if you're a student of what the New Covenant is because Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8 talk about the New Covenant and define the New Covenant and establish the sign and the seal, the evidence of the New Covenant as being where Yahweh puts His Torah into your mind, and writes His Torah on your heart. We have the Torah. It's in our Bibles. It's near to us. It's supposed to be within us, and yet it's lost to the majority of Christians today. You know they say that we're not under the law. They say they say, "Oh, that's Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament anymore." They say those things, but then they want to always venture back and and go back into the into the Old Testament that they say they're not supposed to follow anymore, and the Torah that they say has been abolished. And but they'll always venture back over there, and, and they'll harvest, and they'll they'll find little bits and little pieces that, that talk about blessings and and. St- Sent things that talk about inspirations and, and things that talk about promises of God. And they'll, they'll harvest those things and they'll, they'll pull those things out and they'll, they'll, they'll collect them up and they'll say, See, these support our beliefs. Hypocrites. That's what you are. Let, let me just say it. Hypocrites. That's what you are. You tell me you're not under the Torah. You tell me you're not under the Old Testament. Why are you even using those passages? And I see them all the time. They use the Psalms all the time. You read through all the Psalms, and it talks about the Torah. They, they go to the Proverbs, and, and they, they, they do all of these things, right? And, and you, you, you know, you... You can't just go through and collect passages that support your predetermined beliefs. You can't do that. That's wrong. That's that's the wrong way to use. In fact, you're misusing the Bible. But that's what they do. They don't follow the Bible. Christians don't follow the Bible. They use the Bible to support Christian beliefs by taking passages out of the Bible and using them out of their actual context, apart from their actual meaning, apart from how they were intended by the Torah-keeping people who wrote the Bible. Because every single person who wrote any single piece of your Bible was a Torah-keeping member of the Israelite people. That's who wrote your Bible. So, the, the moment you use a passage to support your anti-nomian, anti-Torah beliefs, you are using the passage out of context, and you have made yourself the same serpent that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. That's what you're doing. Don't you dare fall for the idea that we should obey all of it, they say. After all, they think that there are passages in the writings of Paul that do away with the commandments. Imagine, can you imagine being so deceived that you think that one part of the Bible overturns another part of the Bible? Being so deceived that, that the Bible does away with the Torah, that God's Word negates God's Word. I, I want to plead with you, Abandoned the fantasy land Christian fiction pseudo theology of the churches. And that's what it is. It's fantasy land Christian fiction pseudo theology. It's not what your Bible actually teaches. Christianity is in the Bible. Uh, Check this out. But it's not in the places you think, but Christianity is in your Bible, and I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show you two places where you can find modern, popular, anti-Torah Christian religion in your Bible. The first is Ezekiel 22, verse 26. It says, "Her Kohanim have done violence to my Torah, and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, nor have they taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. They shut their eyes to my Shabbatot, my Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath, the annual feast days. They shut their eyes to my Shabbatot. So I am profaned among them. And then in Matthew 7, verse 21-23, through it says, "...not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven." but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? Then I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, workers of lawless." At the beginning of this message, we talked about lawlessness and righteousness. How lawlessness is those who go against the Torah. We could actually translate this to say Torahlessness. Get away from me, you workers of Torahlessness. You didn't follow the Torah. So you're gonna so all the Christians are gonna go there. And this passage is descriptive of Christianity to a T they always want to gravitate toward miracle miracles and signs and wonders and and they they want to do these things and Then they they talk about these things and they claim that they're doing them all in his name and and it's not even limited to those things. They talk about how they feed the poor in his name. And they talk about how they take care of orphans and widows in his name. And all of these works. They visit hospitals in his name. They go to prisons and try to preach to the prisoners in his name. And and they do all of these works in his name and, and And then they're going to be rejected because the one thing they refused to do was follow the commandments. People like to say that Yeshua kept the Torah so that we don't have to. This is another thing that that the Christians like to say. If you're a Christian, you've probably been told that Yeshua kept the Torah so that we don't have to. He took that upon Himself. And He followed a perfect Torah lifestyle and then became our sacrifice, so we don't have to keep the Torah anymore. Well, check this out. Yeshua got baptized. He, he got baptized, so we don't have to anymore, right? Why are you having baptismal services at your church? Yeshua got baptized. Didn't he do it for you? He prayed. Yeshua prayed. Why, why should we pray? Yeshua prayed, so we don't have to pray anymore, Right? Why well, read the Bible? You know, we know that Yeshua read the Bible because it says he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he pulled out the scroll, and he read the Bible. So, he read the Bible, so we don't have to read the Bible, right? I, I mean, most, most of the Christians don't read the Bible anyway, including most of the pastors. That's why Christianity is the mess that it is today. Because people haven't read the Bible. And they and even if they have read the Bible, they haven't read it in its proper Torah positive context listen and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this message towards a close here first John chapter 2 verse 4 through 6 it says that if you claim to know Yeshua but you don't keep the commandments you are a liar and the truth is is not in you. Now, now I want you to think about that for a second. Think about Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, where it says that the perseverance of the Holy Ones is that they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. They do both. Okay? It's not one or the other. It's not Christianity following their fake Jesus, and it's not Judaism following their Torah without Yeshua. It is both. That is the call of your Bible. That is the call of the apostle. It's to follow both. And he said that if you don't follow the commandments, it doesn't matter if you claim you follow Yeshua. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. And he goes on to say that we must walk just as he walked. Okay? Yeshua was a Torah-keeping Jewish rabbi. Your Bible 100% supports that idea. He was a Torah-keeping Jewish rabbi, not a lawless Christian pastor going around telling people that lie that we don't have to follow the Torah anymore. That's a lie that originated in Genesis chapter 3. And And if you're following that, your God is not Yeshua, your God is not Yah, your God is Satan, the ancient serpent that according to Revelation 12.9 will deceive the whole world. And you think about that. In Christianity right now is one-third of the world's total population. It's not the few spoken of in Matthew chapter 7. It's the many going down a broad path of religion that leads to destruction. That broad path is the path of religion. Follow the way of the truth. Psalm 119 verse 141, the Torah is truth. Follow the way of truth. And then Ezekiel 36, 26, and I want to use this and bring this message towards a close, and I know that this was a longer message, and I do hope that this really gets through to some people and really helps some people. But Ezekiel 36, 26, it says that the to summarize it, it says that the evidence of being spirit filled is that you will walk in the Torah. It says that that under the new covenant, it says in the previous verse, it says that I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. That pairs well with Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8, where the Torah is put into your mind, your new spirit. The Torah is written on your heart, your new heart. And then it says, and then I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, or more appropriately, the spirit of holiness in them. I will put my spirit of holiness in them and I will cause them to walk in my laws, to walk in my Torah. That's what the new covenant is. It is where you're filled with the spirit of Yah. It's where the Torah is put in your mind and written on your heart and then you're filled with the spirit and the spirit causes you to walk in the Torah that's in your mind and on your heart. That's the new covenant. That's Christianity. Christianity is not this mess that we have today. Christianity is, if you really study the word out, in in what it would have meant in the first century, where it was first used, it was a term that was descriptive of being a slave to Yeshua and his Torah lifestyle. They called them Christians, and, and at least the first two times it's found in your Bible, it's used in a, as a negative connotation, according to a number of scholars, in a derogatory manner from pagans who were mocking those who were so sold out to the lifestyle of Yeshua, to his Torah, his view of the Torah, that... That they were mocking them by calling them Christians. Calling them slaves of Yeshua. Slaves of their Christ. That's what they were doing. And And so Christianity, true Christianity according to the Bible. And I know some people just don't even want to use that term to identify with anymore. And that's fine. Because I have no problem with it. Because it's not really that strongly supported as an identifying marker of the followers of Yeshua by the followers of Yeshua in the Bible. I know there's a passage in Peter that is a little bit questionable about that, but that would be the only one. And so, but but true Christian faith according to the Bible would be that which is summed up in Revelation 14 verse 12 as those who follow the Torah and Yeshua together. That would be true biblical Christianity, true biblical faith, the way, a term that they used in the book of Acts, the sect of the Nazarenes, not the Nazarene denomination, Protestant denomination that has everything all jacked up regarding the Torah, but the, the original sect. They were a Jewish sect called the Nazarenes. And there's documentation as late as the 5th century that says that this group of the Nazarenes still existed and they were seen by Christians of that time, Catholic Christians of that time as problematic because they still were following the Torah and regarding Yeshua as the Messiah. So they were debating with Jerome and Augustine, were debating about this in correspondence between each other, saying, "We don't know what to do with these guys. We we reject them as Christians because they think they're supposed to follow the Torah still, but the Jewish people reject them as Jews because they follow Yeshua as the Messiah. They had it right. The Christians, the Catholics of the time, had it wrong. The Jews, the, the Yeshua-rejecting Jews, had it wrong. These This group called the Nazarenes had it right. They were the followers of the Apostle Paul. They said that he was their ringleader. They had it right. So, my friends, if you're listening to this, please think about the things that I've said. And, and, and just remember one thing, and I say this all the time at the closing of all my messages, I, I remind everybody that there's much to be gained by a return to the discarded values of the past. And those discarded values of the past are the Torah of our God. That's what they are. It's the whole counsel of Scripture. That's the discarded values of the Christian church. So I would implore you, Think about the things that I've said. If you want to study more, go to my website. Study what I've put out there. I, I would challenge anybody who listened to this message to really think about what I've shared. And I'll see you in the next message. Shalom. Hey there, I'm so glad you tuned in today. Now, if you enjoy the teachings of Truth Ignited, and you want to financially support the ministry, we want to offer you a few ways to do that. First, we've got our Cash App. Scan the QR code or use $Truth Ignited. Now, this is a preferred method because we don't incur any fees for this service. But we understand that not everybody uses the Cash App, so you can also go to our Spotify for Podcasters page right here, and you can sign up to become a $5 or $10 monthly partner. You can also visit truthignited.com and give your financial support there and find a lot more great messages just like the one you listen to. Also, be sure to check out our Tee Public store where you can find a lot of really cool merchandise, t-shirts and other items that you can use to show off your faith. Be sure to follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, or X, YouTube, Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And remember to share these messages on all of your social media pages. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.